and welcome to Stories from the Crisper Drawer. This is Season 3, Episode 6, When Two Potatoes Debate, We Learn Nothing. <laughs> so, it is Halloween. It is October 31st, 2020. How is your gear gone? I, uh, you know, we've got uh, the craziness of the election ends in only a few days. <laughs> and... Just looking at 2020 so far, it's been a crazy year. I mean, let's go. Let's go all the way back to the start of. Uh, let's start 2020, 2020 off the way that we saw it. First, we started off. Hey, there might be a war between Iran and the United States that might become a regional or potentially a global conflict. Highly unlikely to become global, but yeah, the memes were like World War Three is right around the corner, and thank goodness that never really happened. What else do we have here? Uh, then we had the massive wildfires. In Australia, and fear of a virus appearing in Asia. I mean, there was inklings about beforehand, but was it going to travel around the world? So then, of course, after the wildfires, we got the Rona all over the place. Now, when the Rona was coming over, we also had the fear of the murder hornets from Japan. And there's a good video out of of uh, scientists actually capturing murder hornets. So by good video, I mean like the news crew that got still images of the investigation is cool. But um, like. Really, the scientists didn't make, like, a massive video that they could have put on YouTube and monetized and made, like, tons of money for the project or for future studies. Like, it seems like there was an ec economic loss there. Then we had wildfires on the west coast of the United States from, you know, see, from Washington all the way down through California. And also, like, hopefully the nail in the coffin of gender reveal parties as part of that. Then we had the riots and protests. Um, the largely... Uh, the, the, let's say this. There were a lot of protesting that was done correctly, and there were protesting that became riots that was done incorrectly. And we still are seeing the after effect of people going out and protesting, and just there's a difference between being effectively protesting and just being um, malicious in your intent of protesting. Like, at, like going to office blocks, or not office blocks, going to apartment buildings at like 3 a.m. and banging on the... Uh, on your si on your horns and well on your drums and using mega horns stuff like that just to annoy entire people out. It's like that's you really think that's gonna help? Like, like there's there's a way to peacefully protest that gets people on your side. Like the vast majority of Americans are pro police reform, and with the way they've been doing the protesting, I think that they're losing. Like you can um, you can see they've lost support over time. From when George Floyd first happened, and especially the events of Breonna Taylor, um, Ahmed Aubrey, uh, prior to that, and various other cases where police had just done it, as well as other police lethality cases post um, that have just seen these spring up. Some of them, right? Some of them, the police were completely justified in. Uh, some are not. Like the um, the one in Philly where the guy had a knife. It's like there's not really a lot the police could do there. Like what you get stabbed and then you engage. Like Somebody was going to die, unfortunately, that or be seriously wounded in that incident that got Philadelphia to go crazy a little bit. And, you know, my heart's out to everybody involved in that, both the police officers, the family and the guy who did it. Like he had mental problems. But the problem with that, like he's got mental issues, is not a blanket defense for not having lethal force potentially used on that person. It means that if they commit an, a crime while they're mentally unstable, they may not be completely um, held liable under under the court of law. 
there is like he'll still suffer consequences no matter what. They'll still suffer consequences. And this is it's unfortunate. And I understand like people say, let's do community policing more. Let's get social workers out. So what if two social workers had went there unarmed and he had slashed both of them to death? He'd stabbed one in the neck and then killed and then, uh, you know, sli- and then like stabbed the other one in the heart. I mean, these are all what ifs. Granted, that didn't happen. What happened is the police saw him. They tried to get him to calm down. He kept coming at them with a knife and they fired. And there's definitely more nuance to it than that. That's just what I saw. And it's unfortunate that this has become an excuse for groups who are just deciding that this is their time to go out and get what they want. This is their time to riot, break things. It's just like you're not helping the cause that people who are who do want to see police reform, who do want to see um, accountability across the board, like those are the people who are staring at what's going on and they're like, Ugh, what is next? What, what am I going to get out of this? Like how are we going to have better neighborhoods? Uh, better relations with the police force, um, better relations with other communities if this is what's going to happen. Also, what investors are going to come back in and build businesses? They're seeing it. They're, there's going to be capital flight of these regions if they just keep going on, like what's happening in Portland. You're going to see businesses just leave and set up shops somewhere else far enough away that these protests are going to be able to be seen either far off or in places where the police department and law enforcement offices are going to say, no, you're done, this is a riot, go home, or we're going to detain you for a period of time. Versus Portland, which is like, if you're arrested during a riot, you just get released almost immediately. So there's that. Which, like, for the, for the people who want legitimate reform, the rioting is terrible. For the people who want to riot, they love it. For the people who want to protest and bring about positive change in this world, it doesn't matter, um, uh, like, what skin color they are, what race they're from, where they are. Their goal is just to make the world better for other people. And their heart is like, I don't want to harm anybody in doing this. Those protesters, even if they're blocking highways, I can get behind. Sure, blocking a highway may be annoying. It's dangerous to the protesters and dangerous to motorists. Nowhere near as dangerous to the motorists as it is to the protesters. But I can understand that. I can get my mind behind that. Walking around, like, harassing people who are having dinner and trying to get them to just, like, agree through intimidation tactics isn't going to work in the long run. Because we've seen what that happens. Or it doesn't get you what you want. It gets you a cult of personality or, like, a, you know, it starts, the movement starts becoming more cultish, more, more like a party event that y- you really have to toe the line. All right. And it's just, that's, that can be terrifying. And especially when... Uh, we're seeing Antifa and various groups try to co-opt these protests and move them into other categories. It's like, this is what's going to happen. Like, a, a leaderless grassroots movement can be co-opted very easily on the right and the ra- left. And sometimes, like, sometimes you get, like, a rational uh, person who's center-right or center-left who really wants to make things better. And sometimes they have a slant of like, oh, right-wing views or slightly or left-wing views. But when you see the fringes grab on these things, it's, it's becoming scary of what will happen. So we got that. Now we've got election fever and Rona coming for its second wave or third wave, depending on uh, where you are. I think Europe's, like they're saying, they're sort of in their second slash third wave. Like there's some people who are saying it's the third wave. 
I mean, this is the second big bump globally, so we'll see. I think it's the second wave. And we'll see how it happens. Like, we'll, we'll talk more about it. And, of course, we've got election fever. So that brings us up to today. Those are all the big things that were flown by very quickly. And some of them will be concentrated on in this episode. So let's get to the stupid stuff uh, that's going on closer to home. So in Calgary, the city council has decided as of April, I believe April 4th, 2021, that non-feeder roads, so surface streets that do not, that are not designed to move traffic quickly, so feeder roads usually have a white line down the middle or a yellow line down the middle that they have a divide, they have like a dividing line, or they're directly connected to highways or major road or major uh, transport arteries. So all the service streets, which don't have that, are now going to become forty kilometers an hour. And the justification for city council is that 25% of all accidents involving motor vehicles, and they just said 25%, they did not give us a better breakdown than that, happen on these roads. So 25% of accidents happen on like 85% of the roads in Calgary. Like that's, that's a, like, like, there's a lot of road space there that they're not having accidents in. And they aren't giving us the metrics where these vehicle-on-vehicle vehicle with significant damage or these vehicle-on-vehicle vehicle with uh, negligible damage, so, like, you know, maybe paint scrapes or stuff like that, possibly even, f like, not even fender bears, just contact um, that might have needed some repair, probably had no, uh, no threat to the vehicle being able to properly operate, and, you know, like, all points in between where they vehicle-on-pedestrian, where the pedestrian was, like, you know, stepping out and somebody's making a turn and it's a slight jostling, which is terrifying and can hurt somebody. Or was it like a fatality? Uh, I'd like to see the breakdown of the 25%. What is what? Because then I could be, understand why they're doing this. All I see is, and I'm going to preface this by saying, if they change the fining amount, like if they increase the fines for breaking the speed limits on these roads or whatever, then I'd say it's a cash grab. Because I believe that city, the city people will largely civil dis in civil disobedience just keep driving 50 on these roads. Yes, some people are driving 60 on these roads. I know that. But it is how it is. People want to get around. They don't want to have longer commutes in both time and distance. They don't want to have slow traffic when they see the street is empty. The, um Yes, there are dangerous things that happen. There are motorcycle crashes. There are people hitting. There are pullouts. There are all these things, and I understand, and I, for every accident that involves a significant injury or fatality, it shouldn't happen. But most, but most of the time, we see that those accidents are either um, criminal element involved, drugs, speed, or alcohol, usually some concoction of the three. It's rare that it's not something else caused the event mentor was involved in some way. Rarely is it just a sober person who hits a sober person. Now, sometimes things happen. Vehicle fails. Um, ice, you know, we'll see that, how, um, how winter driving conditions will affect this. But I, I just really don't understand this, and I would love to see the bigger breakdown. Because if it's, if it's a safety change, I want to see what metrics they're going to be measuring against. Because they say that if, this, if it uh, works... They might, uh, see, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, they might lower the speed limit, or it might be vice versa. If it works, they might lower the speed limit. If it doesn't work and there's no significant change, they might make the speed limit more. Like, they're going to try to add some justification. And by the way, they want to drop the speed limit in those areas 
in a year or so after this, just to watch to 30. So basically make a, like 80% of the city a school zone in speed. Which means that there's no, there will be next to no point to having, well, I guess school zones that are on major arteries, um, like Bonus Road, stuff like that, that still needs to have a school zone. But so many school zones um, aren't on major roads. Some are, some aren't. So we'll have to see how that measures up. I just, uh, I just see this, and it's like I can only see it as revenue generate generating piece of uh, crap from the city. So I want to see like the breakdown. Of course, I know the city's going to say blah 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 this this. And I'm going to be like, okay, give me the exact instance. Give me how long you did this study for. I want to know everything. You think? And there's probably some of it I could go find, but I've you know usually it's through these rant like these studies that are very poorly done and like when you actually do them academically you don't actually find out that you get that result or whatever like they're they're very much done with a goal they they are purposefully like studied in a way to achieve an objective like they already know what their outcome they want and then they direct their study to go that way so we'll see we'll see also the amount of money of putting all these signs up which they're gonna have to do to uh, no doubt like they have to because the city because um because it's uh 50 80 and 100 are the uh non-posted speed limits for alberta so they're gonna have to post a lot of 40 kilometer an hour signs signs or post a lot of warnings all over the place so that's a lot of money now that has to go out to that which means they're gonna have to generate more revenue to make that up another clincher is like a city councilor who was a police officer like, is one of the two counselors who are like, this makes no sense. It's not going to work. It's not going to do anything. Thing. It's not going to protect lives. I mean, I, I'm, I'm skeptical with him. I'm not 100% agree that there might not be a, a life-saving component for people who do follow it. But would it be enough to justify an increased travel time, increased congestion events? Um, I don't know. It just, it just seems like BS to me. I really want to know what's actually going to go on. And I mean, like, you're going to see more increased potentially road rages of people who are exiting artery roads onto these slower surface streets, and they get stuck behind some dude or some person who's doing five or ten under. Like, they're already doing five under now at 50, and you're like, jeez, this person's going 44 in a 50 zone. I mean, there's no way for me to safely clear them, so I'm stuck behind them, and everyone behind me is getting more mad, mad because it's slowing them down. So imagine now in a 40-kilometer zone, this person's doing 32. It's like, oh, my goodness, I mean... And then when they drop it down to 30, they start doing 20 to 21. It's like, well, why drive? At least maybe designate more roads to be feeder roads. So that way the speed limit doesn't do it. Doesn't affect all of them. But that's not where the city goes. I, I will be skeptical of if it works, as long as they don't increase fines for, speed, for speeding and they don't uh, like have an increase in ticket issuances. But we'll see. Another story from the city of Calgary, which makes me mad. This is more infuriating because there's actually money on this one. They actually have a program, Graham, um, that, well, let's, uh, let me, let me collect my thoughts first. The program is, uh, you know, for certain districts, you have to pay to park your vehicle in front of your residence. So like in Kensington, you need to get a parking pass. It says you can park in front of your residence and small and various communities have that as well as like downtown has that stuff like that. It's a way to make sure that the people who are parking there actually live in this location have proven they're nearby. Okay. Understandable to a degree. 
Now they want to basically increase it to a lot more communities in the city. Okay. Density's going up. I maybe can get a little bit behind that. And they want to charge everybody yet. Like, there's no longer any free. Okay, you're starting to lose me. They currently have the program going now. Okay, it's making between one and $200,000. $100,000, yeah, okay. It costs currently $2.1 to run. And that's without it expanding. So you're telling me that we're paying between $1.9 and $2 million into a program that is not being recuperated. That's just complete loss. Cut the fucking program. <laughs> or if you're going to expand it, you better be making it neutral. Or a slight increase, like slight money. So what they want to do is they want to increase the charge of the, com the communities that have it. They want to, like just broadly across the board, add, the amount of commu add a bunch of new communities in. Increase the charge of it. I, like bonus roads, one of the roads that's going to have this affected um, in various areas. Reduce the amount of passes a residence can get. Increase the charge of the passes. Reduce the amount of guest passes. This is totally a revenue-grabbing scheme. And what makes me mad is, like, outside of my street, they're doing this stupid, like, um, like weird walkway. But they're taking away a bunch of parking as well. So now it will become a scarce resource. And now they're saying only so many places can get parking passes. Like, oh, my gosh. It's, it's stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed by it. Very annoyed by it. And it just, it, like, the $2.1 million that's losing money, like, I, just scrap the damn thing. If you are if you have a program that's losing money, I'd rather have citizens pissed off that they can't park at a place because some jerk parked there, there. And he's, like, four blocks away eating at a nice steakhouse for, like, four hours or whatever versus having a system to make sure that they're being paid, they're paying and getting it and, like, reserving that spot. And the city's losing money on it. If that was competitive, it would be completely the other way. Also, the prices would probably be more reasonable versus the uh, versus the observation that they're doing. It's just I I can't believe that. That makes me infuriate. And how often do they do like stupid things? And of course, these passes, like your your residence passes, are set to your car car license plate. So of course, that's just annoying. Which means if you get a new license plate, you have to reapply and pay the damn fine again. And a fee. I call it a fine. It's a tax, actually. So that's that's sort of my angry uh, moments involving Calgary. I don't really like the city. And by that, I mean I don't like the political institution that is the city. I do like the city. I like the people who live here very much. I have... I don't know if I'd want to move away from the city. There's a few places I would like to move to. But my heart will always be back here, like the Calgary Stampede, being close to Banff, um, various other things. The community's, like, slightly a little weirder now, like, neighborhoods aren't as friendly as they used to be, but whatever. Um, there still is the soul of the city, which exists. I just don't like the politics and the, the institution that governs the city. It just doesn't seem to be matching what the city should be. And they do these stupid things... That, like, just harm other communities, and it's excuse of, like, oh, well, we got nothing bad to do. Well, let's close down, uh, let's close down Memorial from, uh, 10th Street to, uh, you know, the fucking Center Street Bridge to let people bike and ride on it. It's like, well, you already have a bike and travel path. Like, oh, Rona, ha Corona happens. Like, 
Corona has a very hard chance of spreading outdoors as long as the sun is out. But uh, I digress. That just makes me mad. Now into the uh, election. So as I said, when two potatoes debate, we learn nothing. Didn't watch any of the debates. I watched like two two videos of commentary on the debates. Um, So Michael Malice was one of them, and I think another... And a few other guys I watched. Um, I I just like the the little bit of the first debate I watched. I thought people who have watched that debate may have decided they don't want to vote at the end of it. Like, I, I, if I was undecided voter and I watched that debate, I'd be like, really, I'm not going to vote because both of these are terrible. Both these options are bad. I think the people who won the debate were the people who didn't watch it. And then the vice presidential debate I didn't really watch. What what I heard was the main thing that came out of it was a lot of people weren't very happy with Kamala Harris. Then you had the dueling, um, dueling town halls. Biden had more people watching, and I think he should. He is the front. He is the opponent coming in. Maybe he posts some more ideas. People want to learn more about him. We already know a lot about Trump. He's been in office for four years, so you know, Camp Biden thinks that's a victory and. I I would agree more people tuned into Biden than than to Trump, but but the difference is did the people who tune in decide he's who they're going to vote for? Were they like were they already the converted already voting for Biden or were they unknown for like oh maybe I'll vote for Trump and maybe I'll vote for Biden or were they people who were voting for Trump who got converted or maybe they're Biden people who are like ah now that I've heard him I don't want to hear him like again. And the same for the for the uh, Trump town hall. Did how do people come away from that? Did more people watch that and come off saying like, "This is it. This is three hundred thirty freaking million people in North in Canada. I mean, not Canada, the United States, and those are the two who are going to run for president. That our two parties, our two corrupt political parties in the United States, have selected. And of course, uh, third party Joe Jorgensen of the Libertarian Party, of course, can't get on stage. Why would she get on stage? Why would they let her on stage? Why would they let her add some some uh, spice to the mix, like you know, a, a, an anti-authoritarian challenge? Because Biden and Trump are both authoritarian in a way. Trump's authoritarian against the liberal spectrum, and Biden's authoritarian against the conservative spectrum. It's really annoying. So. You know, as Henry Kissinger once said about the Iran-Iraq war, this it's too bad they both can't lose. It's too bad they both can't lose. Oh, both are bad options, really. And I'd say Biden would have been a better option if it wasn't for Kamala Harris' VP. Like, I just don't trust her. Biden versus Trump, like, both of them are old, old guys who are like, oh, well, Biden's got a health issue, but... Yeah, and he's been in politics since 1974. Oh, it's finally time to fix something. Ugh. Whatever. Freaking whatever about this guy. But, but come on. I just, like, she... I, I don't know what she's bringing to the table because Biden was going to win California no matter who was going to be his running mate. I... Did she hurt her him in California? Is like her law and order passed versus like how she now thinks she's a criminal justice reform senator. It's like I don't know what's going to happen. I just don't like her. I think she's like personally, she's more dark ambitious than Hillary was, in my opinion. Hillary Clinton 
is somebody who would do almost anything to get power. Kamala Harris feels like she's the next step beyond that. But we'll see. We'll see who wins this election. Um, really, at the end of it, I, I hope that the, the more moderate population of the United States can come together at the end of this election, no matter who wins, and not start a stupid fight. Not let the radicals on both sides control this and not let Trump, if he's angry that he lost in his lawsuit and his declaration that he may not secede power to Biden during inauguration, like, let's hope that that vision doesn't come true. And if Biden loses, that the Antifa, like, progressive wing of the Democratic Party doesn't start, like, rioting and going crazy. It would be very nice if at the end of it, the religion of politic in the United States takes a three-year break. Just, like, that's it. But you know you won't, because if the if Biden wins and the Democrats win the Senate and the House, it's going to be their agenda until they lose c- control of it. And if Trump wins all of it, it will be Trump's agenda. And if, the, if Biden or Trump win the presidency and they, their party respectively does not win control of the House or the Senate, only gets one, not the other, so they don't have bicameral control, then you're just going to hear nothing and like very little actually done for the next two, maybe four years. I see that and it's just like, oh my goodness. The religion of politic has really taken over the United States. And it's starting to do it in Canada. I would love at the end of this if it's just people can be friends with neighbors. Uh, you hear about the stories like the the one from uh, the guy who was driving by with a Trump sign and honked at his neighbor and his neighbor shot a shotgun at him because he was a Biden supporter. Now, there was the excuse that his ha- sign had been stolen many times, and maybe that's true, but that's... Like, somebody honks a horn at you, and he's from the opposing political party, and you, you shoot at him? That's terrifying. That it, it has gotten acceptable to do that. And not acceptable, like, that people think in their mind that's an acceptable action. Meet at a frickin', like, picnic table with, like, a nice cold beverage, preferably non-alcoholic... Like, you know, maybe a Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, whatever the heck you want. And drink and have a hot dog with this person who you disagree with and talk things over and just basically say, and your goal is to search what is common. We both live here. We both live in this great country if you're American or in Canada. We both respect the nation. And, you know, the goal at the end of that would be, <laughs> let's uh, let's not be insane. Let's not be vindictive uh, and work with malice against the opponents that we had. Like, if the Democrats win, are they going to be respectful for people who are pro-Second Amendment? doesn't seem like it. That's a great way to be divisive is to do that. And if the conservatives slash Republicans win, they're going after the pro-abortion people. And by the way, I pro-choice, I that term is very, uh, I don't like that term. You're either pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion. A pro-choice is somebody who's like, I'm fine with it being legal, but the state doesn't have to fund it. And I think the pro-life versus pro-choice movement is largely the pro-choice is the government should be funding it. So in that point, it's they're pro-abortion. They're pro-the government funding abortion, not, not pro-choice. Because choice would be like, if I get my taxes as a menu, I just say, I'm not going to pay for abortion this year. There, there, I'm pro-choice. 
But yeah, like the Republicans and conservatives and the Trump is going to go after the social media giants and the tech giants who he thought would have slighted him and him and the media. It's like, gosh, maybe when you guys get in, no matter which side, you look around and you say, OK, the economy's in this shit. Um, let's just try to help regular people. And by regular people, I mean Americans and foreign residents who are there legally and even some who are there as refugees and some who are there are illegally, but you know there's no reason to round them up and send them back. If they're positive for the economy and they're positive for the country, they have a positive benefit, they're not causing damage to their communities. And by that, uh, I want to say about illegal immigration, for them to cause damage, you are talking about people who are criminally continuous acting. If their only crime is crossing the border, which is a crime, I will say that undocumentedly, but if they're coming here to work, they are a positive benefit to the United States. And I, I, I'm almost pro open borders for that. Like, I do think there is a security that borders do give for states, and I do agree with that. But I think the judgment should be as equal as possible to everybody coming in. So if somebody from, is crossing the border from Mexico who lived in Honduras because the situation there is crap, then they shouldn't find it easier or harder than somebody coming from a well-educated Europe place. Now, there are, of course, so there's going to be points or st- systems to do that, that, but I think there are ways to treat those people well and give them a chance to get in easier and also increase the ability of people from affluent areas to get in without seeming like it's corrupt. There must be a way. There must be. And if there isn't, let's freaking make a way. But yeah, anyway, one thing I hope is that we see less conflict in the world after uh, the election. That they're not that the uh, people who win aren't looking after their elites and their elitist agendas. Because as much as the Republicans like to say they're not for their elites, they they do have an elitist class in them, and so do the Democrats. Do they represent the average everyday person? Maybe for about five minutes a day, they do when they when they need to appeal to all their voters. But once they realize, hey, it's two years until I have to be called, and I just need to make sure I pass like one or two laws that my district cares about. Who cares? Although I will say that there's at least a little bit more accountability in the American system than the Canadian system because the Canadian system is just vote the party. Although I suspect the Americans are largely vote the party. The difference is, is that members of the party can generally split. It would be nice if you see that more, if there was more bipartisanship. And when you hear like people criticize bipartisanship in the United States, you stare back and you're just like, so you really want to have like a majority in all sectors of the government and you just lead everything your way. And if somebody questions you, you, you can't be wrong. It's just, that's not how this works. So now to the Ronin, the second wave that's hitting Canada, the United States, and Europe, and a few other places. But, you know, it's, it's sad. Uh, people are looking like they want to do lockdowns again. Governments are wanting to do strip rights, depending on uh, their political sides. There are some governments that are absolutely the other way. There are some people who are anti-lockdown. There are some people pro-lockdown. Mandatory mask, masks and lockdown. Mandatory masks without lockdown. 
it's a Rubik's Cube. Like, there's just answers all over the place, and it's what's looking for what's going to work. And I think the thing is, like, every place is a unique situation. I mean, we're still talking about, just based on the raw numbers, of um, 45 million cases around the world and 1.2 million deaths, fatalities, with comorbidity, comorbidities and uh, and various other factors of why these people died. It wasn't just from Corona. Corona was part of something, uh, some of them. If they hadn't had Corona, they wouldn't have died, so I will say that. But if, but if they had just Corona, they would have survived. So there's various things to look at. And basically we're looking at, um, based on that, the raw numbers, we're looking at 2.67 fatality rate. Like, you know, 2.67 people out of 100 will die from corona. Which is, like, for a planet of 8 billion people, that's a lot. Let's just see. Let's just do a quick mathematical guess. So we have 8 billion that's still 208 million people that would pass away. More like 210 million people. That's, wow. That's almost two, that's just under two-thirds of the United States' population globally that will pass away from this virus. It, that was equivalent across the entire board. Now, granted, we have to say that that is a high-level look at the, uh, you know, like fly-by look at corona. We know that the vast majority of cases of fatalities have been people over the age of 70 and the age of 60. Once you start getting below 50, you see a dramatic drop-off of fatalities. We are having cases where people under the age of 50 who are coming away, like under the age of 40, coming away with um, health ailments. Now, some of them, when I read these stories, like I hear of health nets who have never smoked, and I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, some of you, like, uh, maybe your genetics just aren't in the best position to fight this virus, which is a possibility. Another possibility um, is that there are people in my age group who are doing drugs, are vaping, are smoking, and are overweight, not exercising correctly, are doing other things, other things, um, drink dr- high alcohol intake, very, um, you know, have weakened immune systems from various other things. Um, it's a drug use. I could go on. There's various cases, um, various situations where you wouldn't be 100% perfectly healthy and could suffer various ways. And I hear, like, there's this one case that was, I believe, the Daily Mail or, um, or um, maybe it was BBC. Uh, it was some British um, paper, possibly even a British tabloid, that had a, um, a 20-something nurse who was very athletic, never smoked in her life, who is now having a shortness of breath, um, doing, like, just running down to her mailbox. And that is concerning, especially if she was very healthy. Now, she's a nurse, so she's working in a hospital dealing with COVID people. So she might have been exposed to it consistently. She might have had originally a small sickness, and she just kept getting hit and and hit. And her immune system may have never been properly strengthened after be continuously working and there's stress going on and we know stress weakens the immune system very um, significantly so we've got that now she says she never smoked and she was a health nut and she was a fitness um, nut completely believe that and I can believe the stress from working in hospital maybe um, scared of the virus right, rightfully or unrightfully so and various other um, emotions going on could have weakened her 
It didn't say she didn't. She doesn't partake in vaping. I personally doubt it because some people might say that's part of the smoking thing. Possibly, but I don't know. Maybe she takes marijuana. Maybe she doesn't. I don't know. Maybe she does some other drugs on the side that, you know, every once in a while. Maybe she drinks a lot of alcohol. Um, I'm just saying there's possibilities that she wasn't 100% perfect healthy. I believe that the stress would be the most significant thing and probably the most likely thing for it. I've heard of more cases in the United States, but usually these cases, once they start going in, it's like, okay, these guys were marijuana users, these guys were something else, they had other illicit activities or drugs, or, you know, they were high drinkers, or, you know, they weren't perfect by any means. They weren't like the 100% never done anything uh, that would compromise the immune system, which is hard to do, actually, but it's not like they, they were recreational drug users or something like that. Are those cases possible? Yes. Are there cases that are people who seem to be, like, not super healthy, who are coming away not bad. Like, you know, people who are overweight who are com- in my age group who are coming relatively away fine. Uh, bad diets, uh, various other things. So it's strange why some people are having it, which is why I think maybe there's a genetic component to this virus, that some people are genetically predisposed to suffer more. Maybe when they got sick with corona, they had another illness hit them at the same time that caused this lung damage. Maybe it was only corona. Emma, is it acute damage that will get better shortly? Like, you know, within a short period of time, relative, I'm saying like relative to a human life, which is up to 80 years. Or could it be that they are, this is long-term damage that may never be recoverable from? That's what we don't know yet. Once we know what it is, we'll, it'll be either more concerning or less concerning. And it doesn't mean by that that it's not concerning. It's not a problem that needs to be dealt with and that we need to be worried. What I'm saying is, once we know more, these fears will either be justified or they will be like, okay, well, you have to get past this, you'll suffer for a little while, but your body will get better. If your body isn't going to get better, then it's like, okay, yeah, don't catch, don't catch the Rona. <laughs> Do what you can to avoid it. So, you know, we can only speculate on information that is given. Because sometimes even, like, the best attempts by governments and by news agencies and media to get this data, sometimes they're skewed a little bit. Um, And sometimes they don't even know what questions to be asked because it's so new that we don't even know what we don't know. Like, we don't know what we don't know, so we don't know what questions to ask. Boy, it's that Rumsfeld tautology back again. (laughs) You make fun of Donald Rumsfeld for it, but boy, there's a lot of cases where it works. Uh... So let's get out of that. Let's go to more of a slightly happier place. And by slightly, I mean decide to watch Star Wars Episode Nine. And I'll say, going in, knowing the story, it was a good movie. If I knew nothing about the movie ahead of time and I went in blind from Episode 8 straight into that, I'd be like, oh, this is it? This is... You're, you're filming, like, what you filmed looks good. Your story is trash. That's really because I knew, like, I'd already read the TV Tropes page. I already knew the story of how it's going to go. Like, there was no expectation of, like, this, that. I'd watched um, videos of people criticizing and, like, you know, discussing it. I knew exactly what that movie was going to be like. If I went into that movie blind, it would have been considerably more disappointing than it. The fact that I went in knowing exactly what it was like like okay, now now I can I can it's it's fun. It's not good, 
It's fun. And there's a way that you can have bad things that are fun. And that's why I felt like it. But you can totally, totally get behind, like, like Daisy Ridley saying that it just, like, there was stuff in episode seven and eight that basically storylines ended there. There was stuff in episode nine that was completely created because they needed a way to end the saga. Which I think was maybe, which I think was a mistake. I mean, I I just seem like my proof that Abrams, J.J. Abrams, and and now Kathleen Kennedy, now we know the truth of that Kathleen Kennedy, the head of LucasArts, Lucasfilm, had no fucking idea what she was doing. Like, had like political, like not even political agendas, like just wanted a female character to be like the strong character of the saga. Which could have totally been done. Like Ray is just too, um, you know. What's what's the? Uh, they have a term for it. I can't even freaking remember. Like uh, you know, a term for a character who's just like so like perfect. Like if she gets skills as soon as she needs them, sort of stuff. It's just meh. What is that term? I'm I'm just gonna have my brain's gonna be freaking. Um, Losing my place on it, but you know, like, you know, a perfect character who just like every time she comes across, they come across a challenge, they immediately are better than it. Um, it was just like you know, too overpowered for everything. And uh, you look at it like Ray got out of almost every situation herself, except for the final end where where Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo really was the only reason she survived against Palpatine. But all the way to there, she didn't really need any help. And I mean, she didn't really help anyone either. When you when you watch that, besides from like saving Solo, Ben Solo, uh, on the watery moon of Endor, where the Death Star fell somehow, instead of on the forest moon of Endor, um, like it just it didn't seem like there was any stress. Like the, the fake moment where she apparently killed Chewbacca, which she didn't. Um, it just didn't feel the way it should have. And the ending, the ending's a nice send-off, but it just was too, um, like she, she was just too overpowered for it. I think it would have been better if she had died and, and um, Ben Solo had been the survivor who led the bright future. Instead of uh, a Palpatine becoming a Skywalker. But we, uh, you know, people could, uh, but there, there are things you could argue about it on. It's just the way it is. I will say this about her, like, all the actors, so Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver, um, Oscar Isaac, uh, John Boyega, I really hope all of them have really good careers. I, I just hate that Daisy Ridley's not having a good career because of she started in Star Wars. I mean, Mark Hamill suffered from that, and um, oh God, Hayden Christensen from Episode Two and Three suffered from that. No, now look at the prequel so trilogy, and it's kind of like we were a little harder on those than we should have been. <laughs> oh man, I just feel bad for the saga. And after watching um, Han Solo, the Solo movie, and watching Mandalorian, the start of season two. There is so much there, and the right guys in charge of it. Like, Ron Howard's Han Solo was, I thought it was a good movie. 
really good movie. I liked it. It, it really fleshed out, and of course, the Kess- showing the Kessel Run and all that. It showed who those characters were, and it really did explain a lot. Um, the whole story behind Star Wars, um, Episode Nine, Episode Seven through Nine, just not having a properly projected pathway to start that show that there was like the heart of the writing wasn't there. It was totally maybe there was in Force Awakens, but Ryan Johnson just like didn't give a fuck about what the fans wanted. And the thing was, the fans wanted a good Star Wars movie with a storyline that made sense to where it wasn't just like, oh, this character keeps, keeps, like, um, gosh, I'm hearing that. uh, Oh, gosh. I I, I just, it it came through my mind in a second, and now it's completely, a Mary Sue, Mary Sue, that's the term. Um, And yeah, we have this Mary Sue who just keeps, like, Every single time there's an impossible challenge, she un- suddenly passes it for some unexplained reason, and everyone just like waves it on. So that that was like how episode eight was. It wasn't any. It was like, oh my goodness! So now this has happened, and the blah blah blah. And episode nine tried to fix things from episode eight and left a lot of stuff on the table. Like, like um, Benicio del Toro's appearance in episode eight could have been a great story. Instead, they made him like it was there. You could tell that how uh, how that story was cut together. There were scenes that were completely cut because they're like, "Oh, this we don't want to continue this, or we don't want to do that." If they had had a straight story from the start, knowing that they were going to resurrect Palpatine for the end, if that was their original plan, straight from the start, I think it would have been way better. I think they could have built a better story. Instead, they made this, you know, to the Sith Eternal jump from the First Order to the la- to the Sith Eternal and all this. They made events happen that were tr- totally just trying to fix problems from the past because they couldn't fully conjoin the continuities correctly together. You had uh, you had characters die that like pretty much we're just doing it because oh we we want to throw the past away for some reason like like episode 8 was just bad from a Star Wars perspective it was a good movie they had great scenes in it they had great battle scenes but then once you start like why did you do that why that makes no sense like wouldn't these characters have been spread out why'd you kill all these characters so quickly you didn't even give them a chance to fully develop. Or, like, if they were previously important characters, like, oh, we're going to kill them now just because we, you know, we need Akbar to die. And, of course, it was no, like, respect on set about that whole thing. And then you watch Solo, and then you watch The Mandalorian, and you're like, so the less corporate Disney is on these movies, and the less mainline of the Star Wars universe it is, the more the heart goes into the project and the more it's developed properly. And if they keep the Mandalorian going that way and they keep, um, they somehow get on to, let's make some more side story movies that have heart, like Rogue Run, like Solo. It's going to be great. It's amazing that Rogue One is actually the best Star Wars movie of the last five, of the new trilogy and the two side stories that we got. We didn't get Boba Fett because after Solo was... 
I mean, I think it was positively accepted, but it was lukewarm in a way. But eight was so just, ugh. And I'm, I'm sad to say that. And it's totally like people at the top who could have been in control of this better and should have had a like general idea of where they want to go and explain that to their team. The fact that they had to change uh, directors twice, like they, they lost Colin Trevorrow for episode nine. I bet he would have done great. Um, Brian Johnson was not good for episode eight, and I think they had somebody else originally for episode eight. I believe um, I believe it was the guy who did Godzilla. Um, like Garth Edwards from uh, Godzilla was supposed to do episode eight instead of Ryan Johnson. And I think it would have been better. And Ryan Johnson, like, I'll say, um, Knives Out was a great movie by him. And he did, uh, what was another movie he did that I really liked? Like, I know I used to call him Rain Johnson because I was freaking mad at him. For what other movies has he done? Like, I'm trying to remember. Um, Looper, I liked that. Um, didn't really see much else. But, like, I know Knives Out was a really good film, and Looper I did like. But I guess he's just, like... I don't know. I think he approached that as if he had total creativity. And he just ran with it. He's just like, no, I'm going to F these characters. I wonder if in 10 years we're going to find out, like, he came in to, like, because Garth Edwards was too busy and, like, basically Garth had created this grand story that would continue and then found out there was no general idea to keep going on. So they didn't want to back themselves into a corner. And then Ryan came in to solve it all and... And because J.J. was off doing his own thing and they they didn't have a general storyline and Kennedy was not, Kathleen Kennedy wasn't in charge. She was making those stupid shirts, shirts about the, like the forest is female and stuff like that. It was like, and, you know, bad. And Disney, Bob Iger was too busy dealing with um, the Marvel acquisition, acquisition and all that other stuff and the Fox uh, buyout. So you could see the, the just the disappointment of going on, and then like the fact that once they saw what that movie was, they're like, "Oh, we we need to finish this." I think Lucasfilm was being run by people who had no idea what the property they were dealing with was, besides from the name, they didn't understand what Star Wars truly was. I think Disney thought they were buying a gold mine that could go to every single time, no matter what, and didn't realize that they had cut part of the heart out when they bought it and had tr- and that the people they had bought in it to take over as part of the process didn't have the heart that could continue. Again, like they weren't the people who knew Star Wars. They knew the business, but they didn't know Star Wars. They didn't have George Lucas's soul in it. I think if Lucas had re- had been in the writing team, even helped on just creating an overarching story for the trilogy, it would have been better. And uh, you know, maybe him not even being involved, but them knowing from the start where their goal was would have been a better movie. That being said, it's still a fun movie to watch. Nine is considerably better than eight, but it's not better than than um, any of the original trilogy, which is a very high bar to get. It's also kind of disappointing when you think about it, that nine ends the same, very similar way to seven ending. I mean, six ending. The Emperor's defeated. That's the end of the movie. It's like, oh. I will say the galaxy coming together to revolt was a nice touch. 
Um, the redemption I, again. It, it was almost too much of a like a new generation rehashing of four, five, and six because you had um, like you had the strong leader die like at the end. It just they just slightly rearranged some of the order of five and six, and that's how they got eight and nine. And you, it totally could have been bun, done better. And I think the only way it could have been done better is if they knew from the start what they were planning to do. I think Kennedy thought that she could just produce and make a huge money running the studio. The director and the writers would come together and create something amazing. And the directors seemed to always have a different view of what the writers wanted. And the writers never had enough power, so the director always redirected it. And Kathleen never was there to help. And seems like the source people at Star Wars who should have been there, like at Lucasfilm and LucasArts who should have been directing the film or at least assisting in the direction of where the story would go, were either the ones who were not able to communicate with them, who knew what to doing, or it was people who were, yes, people who surrounded the project, who just get the frickin' property up the door and make money. And so you will about George Lucas and his, like, you know, he's not a great writer and stuff like that. He marketed Star Wars better than anyone. Like, he turned Star Wars a three-movie a three movie franchise originally. In fact, he had Star Wars Episode One, Episode 4, the original movie, A New Hope, which was originally just Star Wars. He had that thing. He had merchandising so thought out better than anybody else. That was a movie that created merchandising at a tier that we still today are like, wow, what did this start that we don't even get to understand? There is very few other properties who have even been close to that successful. And I think that's who Lucasfilm was being headed up by, people who knew, were thinking about merchandising. But then when you think about what they did, they didn't really make a lot of new, unique ships and toys. They made some characters, I will say that. But, like, you never... Like, I, I Granted, I'm not watching as much TV as I did back then, but it wasn't like you don't see the ads for the toys as much as you used to. It's just... Sad. I hope that at some point there is a reapproach of that franchise... I mean, I, I don't know if Disney would even throw it away. They've The fact that uh, Carrie Fisher has passed away, I mean, they could deep fake her, for sure. They definitely can. They've got enough words in their inventory and recordings, stuff like that. Same with um, Stan Lee. But it would be terrible to see them do that. I just feel sad about how the franchise ended. And I mean, I... From what you we've read about Mark Hamill and how he saw the franchise end and pos and w how Harrison Ford saw it go, it was obvious that this was just not going to be the way it was. And like, you know, Luke Skywalker, the great hopeful person in the the Legends lore and in the original trilogy lore, it's like he becomes a hermit because he lost one one spot. Doesn't seem to fit him. I guess that's one thing, like, even, like, through the novelizations, they actually explain that, but it just feels like if you need a novel to explain the differences between the movies and what people remember that character as, especially if that novel is not going to be mainstream 
uh, listened to or watched, sort of missed the point of why you need it. Like the benefit of um, of Star Wars four, five, and six, the original episodes, was they were almost self-contained. Like the rebellion is like the battle has already started, and this was just a major victory. And then you see a next step and a next step, and from from uh, you know one year before Battle of Yavin, all the way through to the fourth year after Battle of Yavin at the Battle of Endor. Door. Um, we see parts of that story. There are tons of stories that we don't see that are in the comics, that are in the books, but you get the general gist of what's going on. Seven, eight, and nine, it was kind of like, what? Okay, your crawl didn't explain much. Your crawl didn't... crawl. Your crawl in seven didn't really start explaining what's going on. Eight was... I, like the problem with eight is it was too quickly after seven. Like the, like there was a very short period of time from episode seven to episode eight. Episode nine had that like delay of something has happened. We need to regroup, and I think that would have also been better as if it hadn't been so quickly. Like it had been a different event. It wasn't the immediate revenge going on. Just my opinion. So now into gaming. I've been playing some active war and active aggression lately. Uh, active war. Got the gold pack from uh, GOG.com. Good old guys, good old games. Uh, CD Projekt Red guys, and I'm happy I bought that one because it's working perfectly on both my computers, and so that's always fun to go back to. And of course, playing that then said like, oh, I want to play the original Active Aggression, which is, um, you know, has two economies instead of one. But that uh, was cool to play and power has that. So three, um, three economic systems. Fun to play um, again. Uh, the original aircraft pack for the 25th anniversary of Ace Combat came out for Ace Combat 7, and boys at flying, flying the CFA-44 for Nostratu on Strange Reel, especially with, like, non-nerfed ADMMs. Oh, that's a fun thing to do. That's oh, fun. It just, it, that, that brings back fun. But I'm playing Luigi's Mansion 3! And there's definitely some stuff I missed from Luigi's Mansion 2 that explains uh, certain gameplay styles. I like some of the bosses and some of the tough uh, opponents. It's like, oh, how do you like, how do you do this? How do you beat this? Some of them I'm like sitting through is like, oh, oh, that's right. I have Gooigi. I forgot about Gooigi. And I forgot about like in one thing like, oh, I can use... Uh, L and R to do like a jump. I didn't even remember, forgot about that. And it's interesting, like some of the traps are just like, oh, like they don't really tell you how to do certain things. Now, I'm not going to say that that's bad. I'm going to say it's sort of like you experience a trap for the first time and it's just like it's an instant death trap and you don't know, it's like no information of how to fight it and you, you, like, Professor. Egad as um, your like you know mission control, you go to ask him how to do it. And it's like oh this is and it doesn't really tell you anything. It's got a that's sort of bad game design in a way. For the few times I've experienced that, we're just like how how do I defeat this guy? Like what do I do? What's the trick here? Here it's like every other opponent I've come across, it's been pretty obvious like what to do or. It takes me a few seconds, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot I can do that. Versus that, though, this one trap and this one boss, it's like, 
Huh? Like, what, what do I do? How do I fight this guy? What, what the frick? But it's really fun. Like, you know, the frustrating moments are few, and the fun and just excitement moments are vast, vastly outweigh it. Is it a perfect game? No. Um, Luigi's Mansion, the original for GameCube, definitely had better, um, better feel to it, in my opinion. It was the original one, so there's that. Um, and I do like how in Luigi's Mansion 2, when you get Toad, you can, when you free a couple of the Toads, you can actually use them as, uh, like, you can bounce them around in a way. So, to save stuff, like, I do appreciate that. That's cool. Um, the ability to go all over the mansion and find various things and how ghosts respawn and stuff like that's cool. Um, there's, I do generally like it. Just again, like there's like two or three times which is like, oh, I can do this because I had to look it up how to do it. Or like I eventually would have trialed an error, but I would have lost money and a life so much. And I had to do that twice. And again, I, I'm not blaming, I'm not fully blaming the guys in Nintendo for it. It might have been, uh, oh, the Gooligi one, like, it was completely my fault for forgetting about it, not theirs. Um, one of the other ones, it's like, was that a technique that was in the 3DS Luigi's Mansion 2 that was expounded upon in that game, like, explained in that game and makes more sense? Just things I've noticed. Also, uh, like, so, for more gameplay, been playing, uh, speaking of Star Wars, some Star Wars Empire at War. <sighs> playing some of the mods of that is just, it's fun to do again every once in a while. Just get the urge to do it. Like, there's so much, there's a good modding community that just keeps that alive, that game alive. I'm just, you know, happy to do it. Gotta get back into Zooms, Ghost of Tsushima. Seems like a really cool game. Gotta keep playing it, especially with the updates. Um... Just sitting around on other things. Uh, looks like there won't be a big push for PlayStation VR and the PlayStation 5 for a little while, which is sad. I think VR, as long as the pricing continues to come down and the cost of developing and deploying headsets, I think you're going to see more people willingly step into it. I think it's the adoption cost that makes it too high right now, especially after the economy of COVID. Although we know that we saw like people buy a lot of that i think ar and vr stuff would have been selling better in the early parts of covid for people that had the assets and the um the financial capabilities to buy that oh yeah i'm playing some more terraria some making some fun graves in there uh making jokes in the graveyard in my world so that's about it anyway it's uh, getting close to the end of the night here. Happy Halloween for those who had it. Um, we're now into November. And we'll just see uh, how the election goes in the U.S. Um, it's not going to be... I highly doubt it will be decided on the night. If it does, that will be amazing. Um, probably be uh, within the week or two at worst. I think there's some states that allow nine days before they get the, uh, after the election, that the ballots can be, uh, that must be received. So they'd have to be postmarked and then sent on the day or something like that. And I think I, I agree with that. We'll have to see 
how it goes. I highly doubt they'll be at the end of this, no matter what side wins, there'll be a civil conflict. I think there'll be a lot of sour people, though. And, but those sour people will be in few in a few locations. Unfortunately, they'll be heavily, heavily promoted by the media, no matter what side they're on. As examples of what's going on in regular town, like regular day America... And I don't think that's going to be the common uh, thing about it. So, uh, that's enough about this. When two potatoes debate, we learn nothing. Thank you all for listening in and have yourself, uh, well, until next episode, have yourself a good time. Stay healthy, stay safe. Continue on uh, living life. For all the best in economic and in health and all that other stuff. And, yeah, have a good day. Good night. Good week. Good rest of your year and, uh, you know, all the best. Bye.